The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, the story of the morning certainly has been this Archegos Capital Management the unwinding of this fund and the volatility that it's caused a handful of names, including some of those big media names like Viacom, CBS, and Discovery, as well as some tech names, and the impact it's had on some of the relationship banks. Let's get the latest with Shonali Basak, Bloomberg Wall Street reporter. Shonali, thanks so much for joining us here. It's really been the story over the last several days here about what happened. What do we? What's the latest on Archegos? capital management. Yeah, well, first of all, it's the fallout we're seeing of the banks, but also what an ugly day for Viacom. I mean, the shares yep. still dropping. You know, I spoke to a bunch of investors today that play in these media stocks and obviously not so thrilled with the, the, the moves you're seeing in the market and really just the violent fundamentals, um, you know, the violent swings you're seeing underneath the surface. Yeah, especially among the uh, investors that bought a secondary offering that Viacom issued just, uh, I guess, uh, on March 23rd at $85 a share. They bought stock, and now the stock's sitting at 44 So a lot of unhappy investors out there, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if we need to take a big step back, I mean, a lot of this was bought on by this family office run by, uh, you know, of Bill Huang, who was embroiled in an insider trading scandal, and then was able to really get all of this exposure on leverage from multiple banks, um, really a huge family office, despite not many people having heard much about him before. Not since 2012. I mean, he's a family office because... He um, settled wire fraud charges, right? And it's interesting that he's even trading with Goldman Sachs and others because we know that um, the compliance uh, people at Goldman Sachs on on numerous occasions had told their bankers, no, you can't work with this guy anymore. Yeah, and ultimately that kind of um, moratorium ran out, and it was Goldman Sachs, it was Morgan Stanley, it was Nomura, it was Credit Suisse, even Deutsche Bank at one point. So you really had a range of banks show up and really enable the this um, person really amassing a humongous family office that has now amassed these major positions on leverage by means of the banking system that has supported him. And Shanali, what do we know about the use of swaps in this transaction? I guess one of the big issue for a lot of people is, you know, particularly investors of some of these names like Viacom, CBS, and uh, Discovery, like why are these stocks going up so dramatically when the fundamentals uh, do not support it? You even, it prompted the company to issue stock. It prompted analysts to downgrade the stock. And it was all because we didn't really know who the buyer 
was and it was because of these swaps what do we know yeah it's a great question these swaps um you know it's an arcane type of financial product called contracts for difference and you know big hat tip to tracy alloway on our team for really running through the issues here it's very unclear as to you know what the rules are around these swaps across borders right we're not even just talking about a u.s story here and the sec did say they are in contact with the banks they are looking at the issue here uh, as a major financial regulation nerd I've got to <laughs> say that a Gary Gensler led SEC moving forward uh. I'd be pretty upset about what happened here and I'd also be looking moving forward around why the leverage outside of the banking system has just gone so far and away such that we're seeing one of the biggest blow-ups since LTCM what does this mean for Wong? What does this mean for Archegos? Is uh, is this the end for that family office? I mean, I want to see who banks with him again, Matt. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, after something like this, you know, how? Yeah, I think there will be much more to come in the coming days on exactly how this happened. That 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 reminds me. Is there more to come in terms of unwinding? Do you think? I do think that we have to be watching this closely. I do think there's more to come. One sign of faith I was given by a hedge fund manager just this morning was, you know, the VIX is still pretty low, right? You're not seeing these uh, this ma- these massive swings go into the broader market in its entirely. But will you see a few more hedge funds lose a lot of money? Probably. Yeah, I mean, first it was meme stocks, and we could say, okay, that's just a bunch of retailers playing around because they're bored. Uh, and now we've got this issue. Um, have we heard anything from the regulators in general? It just feels like you were mentioning, Shanali. It just feels like if I were Gary Gensler coming in here, um, I got some work to do here. There's a lot of pl- things for me to look at. Right. And let's let our memories be longer, too, because at the end of 2019 and early 2020, before even the markets went haywire, we were seeing hedge funds trade at, you know, like 100 to 1 sometimes leverage when they were trading in treasury markets to the point that it caused pressure on some of the safest funding markets in the world. So, you know, it's not even just GameStop or, you know, this this issue that we've seen with Archegos. How is it that you see so many issues in the hedge fund industry in regard to borrowed money in, in just a year and a half? Yeah, so leverage is definitely going to be a point um, that Gensler's going to focus on in terms of regulation. Is there anything else? Is there anything else? Well, yeah, regulation. I mean... Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Well, there's Janet Yellen. There's FSOC, right? I mean, are they going to be clamping down on the non-bank financial system in a bigger way? And and also disclosure, right? Remember, Gary Gensler was former CFTC. That was the main um, overseer of the swaps market. That's exactly what I'm thinking, Shanali. When you see the word secret um, in regards to assets, then in a headline, then you know that um, there's going to be a, at least one or two congressmen thinking this is a problem. Yeah, exactly. And it's the most read story on Bloomberg today, so it's got to be in the back of everybody's and mind. And Sunday and Saturday <laughs> and Friday. It's been the eight of the top ten most read stories over the weekend. So definitely um, a fascinating Scoop there, and uh, who, who do we owe props to? Is this an Eric Schatzker, no, uh, Sri Nardarajan? Eric Shri, Sophia Horte Costa, Tracy Alloway, Behu. We have a whole team. <laughs> whole team on, on this one. All right, and remember, you know, it's interesting. We're going to have, uh, you know, uh, a return, a story, and a show on 4:30 Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio and Television, really diving into this issue. So make sure to tune in for that. 
There was recently a really cool deal done by a Canadian electric vehicle manufacturer. Electromechanica had, um, from the beginning, done all of its production in China. But now the company is opening a location in Arizona, and we've got the guy who did that deal for BDO on the air. Tom Stringer, Corporate Real Estate Advisory, Managing Director, um, running site selection and incentives there. And Tom, let's talk about, before we do the back to work, um, you know, back to school uh, discussion, let's talk about Electromechanica, um, how you got them into the U.S., into Arizona, and, and why they're building there instead of another plant in China. Well, good morning, guys. Thanks for having me back. Really appreciate it. Um, very interesting story. Um, certainly, it's a, it's one that's part of a, the frothy EV market right now. But, you know, we started looking at the project a couple of years ago. Um, the market for EVs was still really just emerging. Obviously, Tesla had uh, had established itself, but other players were really just sort of coming up to bat at that point in time. And we were in the midst of the, uh, the tariff and the trade discussions. Um, which caused right a, a lot of ripples, and, and people were having to make adjustments for that. So access to the North American market, solidifying the supply chain, were really kind of strategic decisions that the company was making early on. And by the, the time we got through the project and, and COVID had reared its ugly head, uh, that market demand and awareness really for EVs in the U.S. really just surged dramatically. It was uh, looked like a very strategic decision uh, that was made two years ago. That, now, the, the the, these... These uh, a lot of these sites are going up in Texas, California, Arizona. Does the sun have something to do with that? Well, I, I don't think anybody dislikes warm weather, certainly after <laughs> the winter that we've had here in the Northeast. So that's check one for those locations. But I think if you look at the states that are really emerging as EV powerhouses, and, and you hit the nail on the head, I would say you know your Texas, Arizona in particular, which had really no automotive manufacturing industry prior to to Lucid, to Nikola, now Electromechanica and some others. Um, you're looking at southern states that are aggressive at economic development in terms of corporate recruitment, job training, um, aggressive tax and incentive policy, terrific utility rates, and, and frankly, with warm weather and, and good tax rates from a personal income standpoint, places people and talent really want to go. So those have been very attractive kind of benchmark uh, points for those locations. Hey, Tom, you mentioned earlier, you know, the push uh, for some companies to bring their supply chains um, maybe onshore in the U.S., uh, and that was a, certainly a big discussion point during the Trump administration. Where are we now that we have a new administration? Are, are companies still moving that way, or are they reassessing? No, I think it's a, it's a good bit of continuity between the administrations. You know, anytime you can get Republicans and Democrats to agree on anything, watch out. It will probably happen. But th this one seems to be um, really taking hold because the markets and, and commercial industry and, and, frankly, consumers were driving it more so than any policy decision. So here we have the policy decision makers chasing the markets, which usually makes for very good policy. Um, so there's a lot of continuity. I think you saw great investment uh, also, again, in Arizona with Intel just last week with the $20 billion chip fab facility. And that was facilitated by both administrations, uh, both the Trump administration starting it and the Biden administration coming on and taking hold to help the state of Arizona drive that home. So um, some good continuity in, in the kind of, we'll, we'll say, um, resetting of supply chains. Uh, that's, that's really going on. So we're in implementation now. It's not just policy anymore or thought process. I just want to jump in and I'll tweet out a picture of 
the Electromechanica solo car. It's so cool. It's a little three-wheeler with an awesome trunk. I recommend Googling it. But again, I'll, I'll send it out on Twitter. Tom, let's get to the um, the bank news, which is, you know, a lot of our listeners obviously working in banks, tired of um, being at home with their kids, or in the case of the younger workers with mom and dad, they want to get back to the excitement of the office, or maybe they don't. What are you hearing? Hey, great question. I think all of us now a year in. Um, it was super positive at first. It was unbelievable how quickly corporate America, financial institutions, government really shifted gears and, and kept productivity up and shifted to, to working at home. Um, I think we certainly realized there's some advantages to it, but there's certainly some limitations. And those limitations are starting to kind of fray the edges of it. I think people are, are excited to get back. I think it's going to look a little different. That's one thing that's been consistent. You hear that term hybrid thrown out there probably a thousand times a day from every leader that gets asked this question. That's because it's right. We've proven how cost effective it is to allow people to work from from home and have flexibility. And that access to talent really means you can recruit somebody to work in New York, but they could be in Iowa or across the other side of the world. And that's a huge advantage for companies and a challenge for jurisdictions. So I, I think as we start to come back, Flexibility is going to be extremely important. Probably less square footage in the central business district is something that's definitely emerging. And that's a challenge that's going to have to be addressed in, the, in those higher cost jurisdictions. They're going to have to get into economic development a lot more aggressively because all those jobs won't come back. Um, I, there was a great stat that came out uh, from the journal the other day that office occupancy, physical occupancy in New York City, for example, is down 84% yep. Yep. from last year. And I mean, that is just a devastating when you think of the number of right, right turkey sandwiches and bagels that are not being sold yeah. and how that affects right the rest of the region yeah we'll have to see how people come back certainly in some of these urban markets tom stringer thank you so much for joining us tom stringer's corporate real estate advisory managing director for site selection and incentives at the firm bdo uh, based in europe giving us some thoughts about how the supply chain coming closer to home for a lot of u.s companies and what that means for infrastructure Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Time for Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined today by Chris Anderson, CEO and co-founder of 3D Robotics based in San Diego. And the topic really is some of these big tech companies. Are they media companies that are responsible for the content or are they simply technology platforms uh, and sourcing and hosting user-generated content, therefore uh, not liable for that content? Chris, thanks so much for joining us here. We, we just had some of those big tech CEOs, Facebook, Google, and others in front of Congress yet again. I don't think anything was, of substance was achieved. What's your view on how maybe some of these you know, uh, big tech companies should be thinking about 
the content that's on their their platforms. Yeah, you're you're right. There was nothing of substance uh, achieved, and there and there never is, and these sort of things. They're largely theater. Um, the, the problem is, is that there's a uh, you know a fundamental disconnect between the role of a platform, which is really what they call a common carrier. They, you know, there's the uh, user created content is is, is impossible to uh, to to edit the way um, you know professionally created content is. Um, and then the uh, and then the, the, the uh, their power, which is now you know greater than than the newspapers. Um, and so the you know the question is, is it is it going to be some sort of oversight board like Facebook created? Well, that doesn't scale. Is it going to be you know actually imposing requirements on them that they um, they're responsible for all the content? Well, that doesn't scale. Is it breaking them up like an antitrust? Well, that doesn't really solve the problem. And we recommend that actually a um, you know, a, a concept from the newspaper age is is, is the best one. So, so what's the uh, what's the concept? Well, back back when in, in, when newspapers were the dominant cultural force for politics and 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 and, and news um, in America, newspapers took the responsibilities pretty seriously, and they, they were considered the fourth estate. You know, after the after the the three estates of government, the fourth estate was like the gatekeeper, the, the, rather the, uh, the the you know the the overseer, the you know the the people, the institution that kept them honest. And so newspapers created the role of an ombudsman. An ombudsman is an independent um, you know, person, an employee often, whose job it is to not only respond to complaints from the public, but also to examine the institution from the inside. Um, a little bit like, uh, for example, an inspector general might be um, within government. And most newspapers had ombudsmen. And, you know, and they, just, they just kept an eye on, you know, they, they watched the watchman, if you will. Um, and now, over time, as the newspaper industry has declined, the role of the ombudsman has gone away. Uh, the New York Times, for example, which called theirs a public editor, uh, they got rid of their last one in 2017. And yet, and so, and, and that's appropriate as, as newspapers became less of a central figure in our, you know, our public discourse. But, but Chris, it's also in, in a newspaper, you can't. Paul and I can't write in and say whatever we want in the New York Times, the edition coming out tomorrow, right? They, they really are in charge of their own content, whereas Facebook is more like Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. Anybody can go there with a soapbox and spew whatever kind of lies, misinformation he or she wants, and they often do. That's the problem, right? Exactly. Well, the analogy is that that a newspaper, you you know, the the writers, the words are are subject to your control. They're your employees. For social media, what you have instead is policies and algorithms. They you know they can't control the words, but they can control their algorithms and how they promote the words to other people, and they control the policies about what moderation rules will be applied to take words down if they're considered hate speech or, or whatever. And so the ombudsman role here is more technical and and sort of policy oriented. So in this case, for example, let's say that there's a uh, intrinsic bias in in Facebook's algorithms. Well, you know, an ombudsman could spot that um, from from both inside and outside. They not only can see the damage on the outside, but they can see what's causing it, the root cause on the inside and recommend a change. An ombudsman would then have the ability to make public recommendations. The company would be obligated to respond to those, um, the, those recommendations within a certain time period, etc. So that's something that, that an outside institution, which doesn't have access to the algorithms, can't do. And an inside, a purely inside institution, might have a conflict of interest from doing themselves, such as an internal ethics group. An ombudsman sits, straddles the two worlds and has perspective on both. It's interesting. This is the seriousness of this issue here is getting uh, ever more apparent here. Uh, it impacted 
uh, presumably the 2016 election. In fact, we're having a guest coming up uh, later in the show this morning, Jack Devine, former chief of CIA's Worldwide Operations. He's actually written a book about what a threat Russia poses in the cyber world, uh, and again, calling to mind the 2016 election. So, Chris, the question is, can we really depend upon these platforms to self-police, given how serious this issue is? Well, the answer is by themselves, you know, no. And and the reason is is not just that they're, you know, might have conflicts of interest or financial, you know, reasons to to do this. The answer is that they, this isn't really their DNA. They are they're all about growth, you know, they, they, and engagement. And the problem is that growth and engagement sometimes leads to toxic behavior. As a matter of fact, you know, as we know, we're sort of driven to negative, negative news. And so, you know, newspapers have the same problem. They sort of you know push negative news because it was more. If it engagement. bleeds, it leads. So if it bleeds, it leads, exactly. So we can't count on them to do it themselves. We do need some sort of independent oversight at a certain scale. Now, obviously, every little startup doesn't, doesn't need this, but at a certain scale, you're considered in the big leagues. Call it, you know, 25 million you know, active users or 100 million. It, you know, it, it, we know it when we see it. At that scale, there's a public responsibility, but there's not a, a, a competence. We can't assume that they have a competence to themselves. We, you know, we're looking for different methods. Congress doing it for them isn't going to work. Antitrust isn't going to work. You well, know, Facebook's oversight board is completely overwhelmed. They had 220,000 complaints over the last three years, and they've resolved, and they've looked at, at seven of them. But, Chris, your idea is a good one. I mean, is there any possibility that it gets traction, an ombudsman that straddles both worlds and controls the algorithms and, you know, uh, watches the watchers? Well, it's clear that Congress wants to do something. They want to pass a law. Um, you know, getting rid of the, the 230 protections is is like an, an H-bomb. It, it, it's not going to work. So, you know, they can either bring up, you know, Mark Zuckerberg in a tie every every three months and, and you know, have that little, that little circus, or they can pass a law requiring them to have this independent board member, call it an ombudsman, call it a, you know, a public editor, whatever they want. And that seems structural. It seems easy to do. And then, you know, we'll let the experiment play out. Is there appetite in Washington for that? Is there appetite for, for action? Yes. Is it an ombudsman per se? Well, let's hope our, our op-ed has had some influence there. I, mean, I wonder if there's appetite in Silicon Valley. Because on the one hand, they want to get rid of this problem. Then they don't have to deal with the idea that they would have to break up or 230. On the other hand, they yeah. want growth and engagement. Exactly. I think there's an appetite to get to, to, I mean, they want to do the right thing. They're just not really set up to do the right thing. All the incentives are wrong. So if they could have a, 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 a surgical, you know, um, effective solution, which is to say one of the board members has to be independent, has to be responsible for this, has to be accountable to the public, but also hmm. visible internally, I think they'd love it. It reminds me of when Google decided they needed an adult in the room and they brought in <laughs> Eric Schmidt. Eric exactly. Schmidt. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Real pleasure talking to you. Fascinating stuff. Chris Anderson, CEO and co-founder of 3D Robotics, also uh, writing one of our pieces on Bloomberg Opinion. If you want to see the work of our opinion people, just type in O-P-I-N Go on your Bloomberg terminal. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. 
I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's talk about weed a little bit because New York lawmakers are agreeing to legalize recreational marijuana. And we could see dispensaries opening up as early as next year. Let's bring in Keisha Kluke. She's a government reporter out of Albany. Keisha, um, so this is really going to happen. Yeah, yeah. It's a long time coming. Uh, Lawmakers have been pushing it the last few years, but they managed to push it through and Uh, We're expecting a vote on the bill any day now, and Governor Cuomo has already said he's ready to sign it. All right. So what does this mean from, I mean, how did, how did, why now, I guess, how did this get done now, Keisha? Yeah, well, I think that, um, like I said, lawmakers have been pushing it for the last few years, and they've really just been stuck on a certain number of issues within the bill, and they weren't able to pass it through in the last uh, few years in sessions. Um, Last year, they said, we've got it figured out, we're going to go through and do it, and then the coronavirus pandemic hit. So it was really delayed an additional year. Um, And I think there's really this additional push because there's we're, we're surrounded. New York State is surrounded by states passing um, and legalizing recreational adult use marijuana. Uh, New Jersey's on on track to do it in a, in two years, I believe. And New York uh, is used to being first. And I think here uh, they've really been waiting and and looking at what's been going on nationally, and they want to get out there and, and get uh, get their hands on some of that tax revenue. So funny to think of adult use marijuana because I feel like people. <laughs> quit smoking pot when they're 21 or older. It's like a, it's a high school thing, but this is, do a lot of people in New York smoke pot? <laughs> well, it's, it's actually uh, expected to be, we, we have a large uh, marijuana, uh, medical marijuana market right now, uh, but this is going to be anywhere from a, a 4.2 to, to $6 billion industry, uh, depending on, on what uh, your, what, uh, business look, outlook you're looking at now. So um, it's going to be one of the largest markets in the U.S., maybe I think even second to uh, second in the nation to California. All right, Keisha, how about for the folks that may have been convicted of you know, a marijuana-related crime? What happens to them and their records and so on? Yeah, so, so one of the main things that lawmakers have been pushing to do in this legislation is to help people who um, help both people and communities who were hindered by uh, previous drug laws. And uh, the bill which came out, this, the details came out this weekend, is going to have an automatic expungement of records for people with previous convictions who um, for activities that would no longer be criminalized. So as soon as um, marijuana would be legal for people ages 21 and older, um, and they're going to reduce the amount of um, the, the the there's still a certain amount of, of marijuana that you can have on your person. It's not, you know, a free for all. Um, there's still rules. They want to make sure that they're keeping the market legal. People aren't selling it on the black market and really trying to keep it safe. But they're also trying to make sure uh, that individuals aren't uh, targeted for this. Has it been unsafe before? Have we seen danger problems with pot? 
Yeah, I mean, when when people are buying it on the black market, and this is just talking to lawmakers, um, it, it can really contain anything. There's no guarantee of what's in it. So um, just like um, alcohol, <laughs> way back in the day when alcohol was, um, they, they started a labeling system actually with bourbon was the first uh, labeling system that required you to put exactly what was in it because people were putting anything in it and it'll be the same with marijuana. So theoretically, it'll be safer, controlled, you know, the dosage that you're getting, um, you know, exactly what's in it. Hey, Keisha, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Keisha Kluke, government reporter for Bloomberg Government. Weed, legalized weed coming to New York State here in New Jersey. It has been legalized, although I don't think it's actually been implemented yet. They're kind of working some things out, but uh, it's coming. And it's interesting, you know, it doesn't appear, Matt, that there's going to be a federal law anytime soon. But but boy, the states are moving uh, very aggressively. And so when you get a big state like New York, that really uh, makes a statement. Of course, California, uh, Colorado, some of the other Western states have had it. But uh, it's been really, it's a big statement here when, uh, you know, a state as large as New York does it, of course, with New York City. Uh, So it's a big move forward for the cannabis business. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.